Prem likes us talking about video games. I could talk about video games again. I mean, that was fine. I had so much more to say about Zelda. I mean, I'm down to talk about video games. You're down to talk about video games. <laughs> I don't have a way to cleverly link it back to programming this time, though. Uh, link it back to programming. <laughs> Although I did find, I put the link in the show notes. See, I did it again. I put the link in the show notes about uh, there are more Zelda games with second quests that I didn't know about. Oh, yeah? Yeah, like Wind Waker has a second quest. Oh, yeah. They're not as rewarding, I guess, as the second quest in the original Zelda, which is entirely new dungeons. But I also, the link I put in the show notes describes why they did the second quest. And it's because the person who designed the dungeons for the original Zelda made a mistake and used half as much memory as he was allotted to do so. <laughs> and so instead of going back and redesigning the dungeons, they just decided to add a second quest so they could use like fill up the memory with new dungeons and add a second quest. And so that's why uh, there's two quests in the original Zelda. I mean, hey, if you got the RAM for it. Sure. <laughs> I did want to quickly mention, I tweeted something about this, but um, somebody brought to my attention in the episode a couple episodes ago, like number 103, I think it is, we were talking about applying for jobs. And at one point, I said something about a, people being low-quality applicants, or a person being a low-quality applicant. Uh, what I really meant to say and what I should have said was they submitted a low-quality application, or not something we were looking for. But my words instead passed judgment on the quality of the person, which is not what I meant to do. Sorry. I don't think any less of you, at least. But I already thought you were a jerk. So. Yeah, that's what I said. I was holding on hope there were a few people who didn't think I was a jerk. You know, usually usually on this show I say stupid things, but they're usually harmlessly stupid, and this is what I felt bad about, because I didn't mean to make anybody feel bad. Hopefully that clears that up. Yes. Other follow-up that I wanted to bring up. I got a lovely email the other day. Let me pull it up. We've talked about commit messages on the show before and how like writing really long commit messages is awesome. And out of the blue, somebody named Al Lin emailed me and he said, Hi, Derek. I was skimming the commit history of clearance to find out how to make my own raise action controller forbidden exception and came across this commit on token leaks through URL referrals. And then he links to the commit and he says, Thanks for writing such a detailed commit message. It was super educational and something I need to get fixed at my company. And I was like, wow, just a random like middle of a wednesday got an email like that i was like that's great fantastic i'm glad somebody's reading that because <laughs> <laughs> oftentimes you know i do spend a lot of a lot of effort on a lot of these commit messages and sometimes it comes like uh, how often it pays off is probably is not proportional to the amount of time i spend writing them but when it does pay off it's nice and when somebody else appreciates it even better it's great so write great commit messages and then al will send you a message like this it's great it's fantastic yeah on diesel, I can't tell you the number of times that somebody's asked a question and I've answered it by like going and finding the line related to what they were asking about, get blaming it, and then reading the commit message. Yeah. And I guess that's definitely true of open source stuff because people tend to ask those questions that go back like a really long time. I guess in an applica in application code, it's probably similar, but for whatever reason, I find it less... I don't know. Maybe it's just that I'm beaten down by doing git blame and seeing like a one one line commit that <laughs> those times all <laughs> overshadow the times that it's been really useful for me. On right. Application I mean, project. it's easier to get into that habit when you tend to mostly be blaming code that you wrote. So, you know, it has a reasonable commit message. Right. Yeah. That is one of the things I do look at going back to the application stuff that when somebody submits a code sample, if they give us a git repo, I do look at like 
what are the commits like here? Like, even though this is a project with just them, like, are they taking right. the time to write a commit? And I don't necessarily hold it against them if they're not. Like, if it's a project for just them, it's like, okay. I would love to see, like, a couple detailed commits in here so that they're, like, shows that they're trying to explain things to themselves, kind of. Right. I mean, I mean, other people includes you next week. Right. But if it if they have written good commit messages, that definitely goes up a couple couple points in my in my book. Or if it's a project with multiple contributors and they're not writing good commit messages, then it is something I look at and say like, oh, okay, well that's something they're going to need to do. That's one improvement they're going to need to make anyway. Yeah. What else is up? I don't know if this will be an interesting topic at all or not, but um, I decided to to start trying to get Kerbal Space Program going again which I have this set of realism mods that I use that hadn't updated for the latest version, so I stopped playing. And they're still not fully updated, but like most of them kind of work, and you just have to compile a few things, and it's fine. So that means I've broken back out this uh, Rust script that I wrote to help figure out payload capacities for various rockets that I'm building and where they can go and whatnot. And uh, the main the main reason for that is I really like the Atlas style of, of staging. Um, and so what the original Atlas rocket did was, well, most rockets don't have boosters, or if they do, they're solid rocket motors that detach pretty early. But most rockets that have boosters of some kind, like the R7 family, for example, has the sustainer engine firing and the booster strapped onto the side. And then when the boosters are done firing, they detach and they take the empty fuel tank with them. But what the Atlas did was it had just one tank and three engines, one sustainer engine and two booster engines. And then when it was done firing the booster engines, which were feeding from the same fuel tank as the main engine, it would just detach the engines. And all of the mods that are built in aren't really meant for like, and then you randomly stage this thing two and a half minutes into flight. Mm -hmm. But like, I need to know my delta V for that. So you have to solve the, the rocket equation for that, which is not something I'm going to do in my head. So I, and I just like being able to quickly prototype a few different stages that I've built without having to like go and get everything set up in the game. So I have this little Rust script that I wrote, which has all of the different um, artisanal forms of, 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 of rocket staging. <laughs> artisanal. <laughs> and attempts to like estimate... I mean, really, really, all of this is just going to end up being an estimate anyway, because, you know, I'm not I, I'm not properly accounting for like changes in engine specific impulse from sea level to to a vacuum over the course of an ascent and stuff and stuff like that. Uh, so this is I want to back up for one second. Okay. So Kerbal Space Program, a program mm -hmm. where you build rockets to go visit Kerbals or something like that. Kerbals are the are the, the they're the, little aliens, right? Yeah, they're the little aliens that that you're flying the rockets. Oh, okay. They fly, so you build them rockets to go places, right? This is not a realistic thing, but you modify there are a set it of to mods be... that make it realistic. Okay, like realistic physics. Is what well, we're the physics about? are real. So the the physics are realistic in mm -hmm. the base game as well. The main thing that's different is so the planets are roughly one tenth the size of the planets in our solar system. But because gravity sort of intuitively still needs to work a certain way for things to make sense, they kept the planet Kerbin, which is the their Earth equivalent. So it's about one tenth the size of Earth, but has the same gravity as Earth. So it's, very, it's, it's a extremely planet. dense. <laughs> it's extremely dense. Um, and so it leads to like it's one tenth the size, but its mass is much higher. So like its orbital velocity is 2.4 kilometers per second. Um, Earth is 7.4, but so you'd expect it to be like 740 if it was one tenth the size and therefore one tenth the mass, but not actually one tenth, but closer. Anyway, so there's that. And then to make gameplay sort of balanced in that weird, like 
gravity is really high, but things are small. The, the engines in the base game have, I don't remember if it's higher than average thrust-to-weight ratio or lower than average, but their thrust-to-weight ratio is wacky. Uh, and then their fuel tanks are really, really heavy. So why, so did, like you t- why didn't they just make the realist way the way? Uh, it's a lot harder. Ah, uh, okay. Now you're getting it. <laughs> um, they wanted the game to be fun. <laughs> right. I, I mean, and they, they have other things like, uh, like all engines in the main game can be throttled down, which only a handful of rocket engines in the history of liquid-fueled rockets have ever been able to throttle at all. Right. And most of the rockets that could throttle would only throttle down to some, like, for example, the space shuttle main engines would throttle down to 70 percent. Uh, and that was mostly to keep the G forces low towards the end of, of the uh, burn. But in Kerbal Space, in, in Kerbal Space Program, at least at the base game, all engines can be throttled down to 1 percent. I see. And then also another difference, engines can be restarted an infinite number of times in the base game, which most engines can't be restarted in flight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Cool. And I saw you posted a screenshot that said you're 800 hours in. To... The number's actually pretty low. That's just the number of hours that I played when I launched it through Steam. But I also tend to launch a lot from not Steam. So there's probably another five or 600 that aren't included in that number. So you've gotten your money's worth. I've, yeah, for a $20 game, I've got my money's worth out of it. <clears throat> yeah, we were talking about that on the last show, about how like they like certainly get more money's worth more than your money's worth out of like that if you're looking just strict to like amount of time invested than like a movie or a yeah. netflix membership even or something like that particularly if you're going to play it for a thousand hours <laughs> right costs 40 dollars now but oh you got it on sale <laughs> no i got it back when i was still in beta oh okay it was like april of 2015 14 something like that and they made an announcement I, I knew I had been meaning to, to play this game for a while, and, and then they made this announcement that, like, hey, if you buy the game before April, you're going to get access to any expansion packs we release for free, <laughs> but only if you buy it before April, so I bought it. So you bought it, you got it for $20, and also you get the expansion packs for free. Yes, which they just announced recently, the first expansion pack, which ironically adds a bunch of missions and engines inspired by uh, real-world missions and well, engines, there you go. which so probably doesn't add a ton with the set of mods that I use, but hey. Well, it'll be official. It won't be a mod. Yeah. Why did you write that script in Rust? Was it just because you wanted to, or did you get some sort of benefit of writing that script in Rust? I don't know. I just tend to sketch out my ideas by writing out types. Hmm. Because so I was going to say, like, scientific calculation, I think, stereotypically of Python, right? It'd be like, oh, I'll right. write a Python script. I don't necessarily think that's because Python is, like, ignoring library support. I don't think that's because Python's, like, the most suited language for that. I think it's just because a lot of people who work in science and aren't programmers learn Python to do the various one-off scripts that they have to write. And they do also have great library support for... Right, but that's as like a that. result of the right. fact that right. people are using it in that space. Particularly when you compare it to, like, we've had a couple of projects where people trying to do, like, advanced scientific type calculations and, like, they're like, oh, I'm just going to use Ruby. And then they're like, forget it. I'm going to go use Python. <laughs> so library support isn't there. Math is yeah. weird. Uh, if you require the wrong file, math changes. <laughs> so, you know... It's not, that's deprecated now. Or isn't so. it removed in 2.4? Probably. I did notice that if you uh, do a GitHub search for require mathn, the first result is a, is a repo from my account. <laughs> <laughs> if you do this while signed out of GitHub. Nice. I was going to say, did you just get sandboxed? But no, you did not. Nice. No. And apparently it was when I was still learning Ruby like in the early days, and I thought require mathn was how you got prime number generation. 
Hmm. Turns out it's not. No, no, I literally <laughs> had no clue what math ended. Do you have more about Kerbal? I mean, <laughs> you I have eight hundred hours worth Kerbal. of Kerbal. <laughs> Do you want to talk about this complexity thing? Yeah, sure. I mean, we can talk about it, but I didn't really think that like the time it takes to add new features is uh, multiplied by the number of existing features. Was I didn't think that was a particularly controversial um, opinion. No, I thought the interest. So that so there's an article that we can link to written by Terry Crowley called Complexity and Strategy. It's kind of long, but it talks about basically as the functionality goes up, the cost goes up. It's a fun like the the cost of an, any functionality is dependent on how much other functionality already exists, kind of thing. And it talks about how. Most people think of that line, like if you're going to plot like functionality on the y-axis, cost on the x-axis, most people think of that line as having like a constant like 45 degree slope or something like that, right? But if you ask engineers who've been working on these types of projects for a while, they would draw the line differently where like the cost has that like slope originally and then kicks up again, right? Right. You reach a certain point and adding additional functionality is just significantly more expensive than it was in the beginning. Right, cost is is an exponential function of functionality. Right, and that, but there were just a couple things that like we'll link to the article in the show notes and you can read it. But there were a couple things they talked about, like they started talking about new code, like how do new frame. He started talking about how does like new frameworks or new code or new new libraries, new languages, how do they affect this overall curve, which is really what we care about when we're building complex projects. And one thing he says is, what I found is that advocates for these new technologies tended to confuse the productivity benefits of working on a small code base, small n essential complexity due to fewer feature interactions and small n cost for features that scale with the size of the code base, with the benefits of the new technology itself. So, like, it's really easy. It, like, let's, let's go back to when you had never written Rails before, right? Right. And you were doing something in Java or .NET or something like that, and you had boilerplate and you had... XML configuration all over the place or whatever it was, whatever your particular bugaboo about those languages is. And then Rails comes out and you're like, oh my gosh, this changes everything. I can get so quickly to like something shippable. There's so much less boilerplate and you can confuse that feeling for a long-term productivity benefit that you will see using this language. Right. And I thought that was pretty Spot on. I, for whatever reason, I had never really thought about it that way, and, and, and I think that's it's natural to do with any technology, right? So, like, if you're going and using Elixir and Phoenix, like, there's some things they do better that maybe I don't. I don't actually think anything I've used approaches like the immediate productivity boost you get from Rails, but it, in my experience, it doesn't. Rails does not change the curve of that line at all, really. No, I, well, I don't think anything can change the curve or even like the slope if you have that initial slope as well, like. <laughs> There was a period of time where new technologies were providing order of magnitude benefits in terms of productivity. Mm -hmm. uh, and I arguably, I think the last one was maybe basically garbage collection is mm -hmm. arguably the last, the last time we saw an order of magnitude. I don't think we're ever going to see another one of those. It's actually part of when we, when, when, when people get into these, these technology wars about which language or framework is the best. Part of what irks me about the whole discussion is that, A, they ignore ecosystems, and B, it actually just doesn't matter that much. <laughs> right. You should use what you prefer and you feel productive in kind of thing. Yeah. Like, like we're b way beyond the point. Assuming we're not talking about choosing COBOL over writing machine code directly, um, <laughs> right. there it just isn't going to be a technology that's in use today that's going to have an order of magnitude difference in productivity from any other. Right. 
I'm willing to entertain the fact that there may be large changes in quality, maybe. Sure. Do you think that's possible that like we will write better pro like is that is that what we're gonna see? Like and we're already starting to see with Rust and Haskell and Elm and TypeScript and things like that, where instead of being more productive, I would argue actually early on those are probably less productive, but over time right. maybe quality stays the same. But you you pay you pay the initial hit in productivity to uh, have the benefit in maintainability, right? And know and know that your code is free of the kinds of bugs that come to bite you in the future. And Terry in that article talks somewhere about how like if you keep a small product, it's easy to look at like that productivity boost you got from Rails new, right? If you keep the product small enough, you can. Uh, I think the term I think he says like you can book that, right? It's booked. It's it, like you can bank that if you keep the product small enough because. Now you're done and you got that huge boost. But if the project is sufficiently large, it's dwarfed by the complexity right. of interacting features. Right. And this is why I argue a lot for having the, the framework for the framework. Because <laughs> the needs of sufficiently large applications tend to be the same as the needs of the framework itself. Like once you have enough code, it, it, there's probably actually a different factor here than just the amount of code that you have. But whatever the actual factor is seems to be correlated to just how large a code base is. Projects that, that get lar sufficiently large always tend to just have enough special needs that they are that they tend to always be butting heads with, you know, the surface level of the framework. I necessarily think that that that's an argument against using frameworks though or that the benefit of the framework is lost over time. I think it's more an argument that frameworks should do a better job at then giving you the next level down when you need more customization. Right. I think this is similar to like what you were saying where he says like the framework doesn't evolve along the same path that your app needs to evolve upon right. needs to needs to evolve on so what ends up is all that initial product productivity you got from using the framework you pay for it because you now have to do things differently from the framework to do the next part of the next the next complex thing you need to do because the the framework didn't evolve in the same way that your app evolved in right basically. and i i just think that's that's the result of that missing layer underneath like, it, it shouldn't be a huge cost to then need to go in a different path. It should just be, okay, so the framework's doing X for me. It's easy to understand, like, what X is doing in, in terms of the next layer down because it's a it's a framework for the framework. And then you just jump down that layer and then, and then continue to build. I think this was Yehuda's talk at a RailsConf a while ago where he talked about, like, skyscrapers. Yeah, Ernie Miller's giving a talk on, this, on these lines as well. Okay, so basically, like, the idea being, like, you can use Rails or Ember or whatever it is, and it's like starting building a skyscraper at the 50th floor or something like that, right? Yeah. But the floors 1 through 49 should not then be inaccessible to you. Basically. So that was more Ernie's point. Yehuda's point was like, everybody just needs to shut up and come get on the 50th floor so we can build the 51st floor. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I think I see Ernie's point more as I age then. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know I never talk about the Attributes API in this podcast. <laughs> we haven't talked about it that long, in a while. But I think that's, that's sort of a good example of, of one of these sort of mostly internal facing, but there for when you need it, next level down sort of framework for the framework. Right. I used that recently on a project, and I was like, this is really nice. I think I, think I might have talked about it on the show. I think it was for generating record locators or something like that, <laughs> where I just wanted there to be a type. And it was perfect. worked out perfect. Well, and it's really good for uh, plugins as well. You know, if they're adding support for a data type in Postgres that we don't support in Rails. Right. Yep. So we basically wanted to ensure that anytime you queried for a record locator or saved a record locator, it used uppercase letters. 
right? So this is something a user could be keying in themselves if it got read to them or they're reading it off another screen and they're trying to type it on their desktop or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. And so if they type in a lowercase s, we just want to go ahead and upcase that for them. But uh, we don't want to have to do that everywhere in the code where we're calling where. Right. And so having a type for that that just always upcases the value when it serializes it took care of that for us, which was nice. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I go back and forth because the, the other, ob not obvious, but like the other way that uh, you could jump to immediately for that one, it depends on the on the database backend, but basically use uh, a case insensitive text type. So it's uh, the CI text extension on Postgres hmm. or in MySQL, it's a case insensitive collation. I don't know that there is such a thing as a case insensitive text type in SQLite, but... I don't know. There's, pro, there, there's pros and cons to both. And a lot of it depends. Like, it's a lot easier. The custom type makes a lot more sense in, in Ruby, just where you do know that you'll have that sort of uniform access principle applied to always accessing the records through that one class. Right. So I'm always going to be using it. I'm always going to be calling it through this active record query where I'm going to call where. And right. it's going to get serialized using this type. Right. Um, but if I had other clients that were interfacing with this database or something like that, or another, if I were going to write raw SQL against it and needed to make sure that queries to that were case insensitive, then yeah, using a case insensitive text type. I didn't even know that it existed in Postgres, so that's cool. Yeah, it's it's not in Postgres proper. It's an extension, but it's a, it's a really commonly supported extension. Like Heroku Postgres supports it, which is usually my bar for like commonly supported because they, they, <laughs> they tend to be pretty, uh, not like restrictive, but just conservative. I've been conservative, but kind of a middle ground. Like they support a little bit more than you'd expect, but also you're not going to find like the random Semver data type extension that somebody wrote isn't isn't on Heroku, hmm. for example. Yeah, this kind of reminds me of a thing I just saw uh, yesterday. I saw Richard Schneeman he tweeted about it, but it was um, database constraints for Active Record, mm -hmm. and it adds foreign key constraints, which we now have. But this project dates back to like 2011, I think. So that's in there. But then you can also easily add inclusion constraints, numericality constraints, and presence constraints, which I didn't even know presence constraints were a thing. Uh, but I mean, those are all just check constraints, right? Yeah. I would assume. Yeah, I guess so. So it's just a check constraint. It's not a special type of a check constraint. I didn't no, look I mean, at what it was underneath. No, it'd be check. Right. You know, it'd be check not null not and then check not yep. equal to empty string. Right. So that's nice. You could do that at the database level and you could do a numericality constraint at the database level and you could do an inclusion, which is basically an enum constraint on the database level, which is nice. So that project's called Rain, R-E-I-N, and we'll link to it in the show notes. But if you're interested in letting Rails do more database type stuff, cool database stuff, then you can check that out. There's also this project that somebody wrote uh, about database views. It's pretty good. <laughs> 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 um yeah database constraints are good <laughs> more in general i think doing more database level things would be a good way for rails to go like the response i've gotten releasing scenic so caleb and i worked on that together we released it and the res the response i think indicated that people like it and like i keep adding it to projects and i try to overcome the i wrote this bias Right. So I try to say, like, I'm not just using this project because I wrote it because somebody's going to ask me about it. And I, I don't want to be like, oh, well, I wrote it. And then, like, <laughs> and then have them feel bad about saying they don't like the solution. Right. So I want to, like, try right. and stay away from that as much as I can. But, like, I'm just like this last project, I made it like five months before I was like, you know, it would solve this problem pretty nicely as a database view. Like, sure. <laughs> particularly because it still lets me live 
like in this this last instance where I deployed a view for, I could have written a SQL query for it and executed that SQL query with Active Record Execute and been fine. But this lets me like get that out of the way, store that in the database, and then expose the results of that as a regular Active Record thing that the rest of my models can reuse however they want, right? Right. And that's what I think. It just fe- like using it, it feels like something like that should belong in Rails itself, because it just seems like ignoring the database for things like that is hamstringing yourself unnecessarily. Well, I mean, so there's a couple of different factors there. You know, the first one in terms of just going back to data validation, right? Mm-hmm. I think there's the this fundamental um, uh, ultimately there, there there's there's two types of validations that you need to have. Those that are actually required uh, for data integrity purposes. Mm-hmm. Foreign key constraints are the most obvious, not null constraints are, are, are another good one. Things like presence validations, though, are almost never actual data integrity constraints. Like your application doesn't, your, your data does not become invalid because there's an empty string somewhere. I mean, a user's email, right? The data is basically invalid if they don't give us a, if they don't give us an identifier they can use to log in. Sure, again. but a unique constraint is effectively the same there. Like you, you right. don't actually care whether or not it's an empty string. You just care that it's it, it uniquely identifies them. And hey, it, it's not that big of a deal if one person is uniquely identified by an empty string. Right. I mean, you don't want that to happen. But be a pretty awesome uh, way to log in every time. <laughs> yeah, it'd be pretty hard actually because Rails probably strips those out. Autom- Rails strips those out automatically for you, right? So, anyway, strips what out? Like if you submit an empty input, it's not in your params. Yeah, it is. Is it? Yeah. So what's stripping that out then? What's not letting an empty string in there? If I have a form, right, it's like a user right. registration form, and yeah. a name is an optional field, right? Right. And you click submit. Right. And I permit name as a parameter, and I do right. a mass It'll assignment. Be an empty string. It'll be an empty string. Maybe I just don't have optional text fields very often in my models. Will it really be yeah. an empty string? Yeah, it'll definitely be an empty string. Huh. Look at that. Like, okay, that makes sense. Never mind. Forget I said you that. You know, like, it would be really bad if we didn't do that, because then if you have a form and you legitimately want to replace a thing that previously had a value with an empty string, and so you <laughs> empty out the text field and click submit. Yeah, that's true. I do avoid optional fields as much as possible, so that's probably why. Well, but then that, that, that also gets into, right, so the other kind of validations that you, t- that you have, which are the ones that Rails is most focused on, are things that are there for UI purposes. Right. Right, so like, while your application doesn't necessarily break if somebody has an empty string for an email address... You still don't want that, but you want to have a user-facing error message. And database constraints are really, really bad for creating errors that are easy to capture, identify, and then handle and display to your users. Yep. Like, if, if something is required for data integrity purposes, the database is the only thing that can validate that. Right. And that's I, I actually wrote a blog post about this last month for the ThoughtBot blog called Validation Database Constraint or Both, and we can link to that in the show notes. But I said a lot of the same things, basically, like... Basically, kind of longing for the world where fast forward 10 years and form objects are like really great thing in Rails and your validations. So 15 years. <laughs> and your validations go on there, right? And everything else right. is a database constraint and your models don't do anything, right? Yeah. <laughs> Try and live in that world where if you have a validation, it's for a user, it's for an error you expect a user to hit and to be able to recover and to be able to recover from. Right. If the user can't recover from it, then an exception is the right thing to do, not right. a validation. Right. Well, I think unique constraints are a really good example of this. Well, it's a good example of a case 
you would never have the just a Rails validation case, but you definitely have the database constraint or both the database constraint and the Rails validation. I mean, don't say never. You often have just the Rails constraint. <laughs> I see that I often. Would say, I would say with uniqueness validations, that's always the a wrong mistake. answer. Yes, it's always a mistake. Yes. But I see it often. <laughs> right. Sorry. I should say assuming that you're looking for the quote unquote correct answer. Okay. <laughs> right. So email is a good example of a case where you want both. Because you could, when people start talking about uniqueness validations and how the Rails uniqueness validation does not actually validate the uniqueness of anything because it can't. Mm -hmm. Well, I, you know, in theory it could if we placed an exclusive lock on the table. That would be bad. When we performed the check, but that mm -hmm. would be really bad. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you do want both. Right. So then you get into, all right, so you need the uniqueness constraint. But then, then people jump from there to, okay, so now how do we how do we make it so that when that uniqueness constraint fails, we bubble that up to active record, active model errors in a way that Rails knows about. And I think that that jump is a really bad idea. In this particular instance, I don't think it's a bad idea, right? Like, because you want both. It is... You want both. Right. But the thing is, right, for the user-facing error... Mm-hmm. You want both because if that race condition ever does occur, you do not want invalid data in your database. Right. In and, reality, though... And it's also, you need the application layer stuff because you, that is an error the user can recover from. Typically, right. it's that they already have an account, right? Or they're trying to register under some bogus account that already exists. Exactly. In which case, like, if that race condition ever does occur, let it 500. They'll hit back and try again. Really? That one in a... Oh, the race condition. A, yeah. Right. Yeah. Or you lose the one in, in a million or a hundred million people who tried to register and actually had a race condition. Right. But, but when you're talking about the user-facing error, the Rails uniqueness validation, that which can actually do true uniqueness validation, right. will catch it. The race condition just isn't, a, at least, it's not a concern, generally speaking, in places where the user is able to recover from it. The only place I've seen it was, and we saw it on the app we worked on together, was double-clicking. Right double clicking a button and people do that all the time and now it's a fixed thing in rails presuming. but that's my point right and that right. wasn't a, a thing where the user could recover from it we didn't have right. we, we weren't displaying an error message to them because right. there was no error to display we actually i think we did not have a unique constraint backing anything or something i forget what the, oh, we, we, yeah, had, we ended up with bad data in the database or something like that and then but either way even once we add the unique constraint the double clicking then resulted in a 500 which was confusing it was like did my thing happen or did it not happen Right. The second click is the what, what got you the 500 or whatever, you know, whatever the case may be. But the point, but even if it wasn't 500 ing right, what are you what are you going to be doing there? Because usually that unique constraint is on a hidden input, which like doesn't have a place right. to display errors for. Right. Yeah, it definitely was because I'm trying. I think I remember the case was like joining a group. Like users right. had many groups, right. and, 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 no, and those group. are usually when I'm talking about like the unique constraints where the user could, like you need those constraints. But if it were to ever fail, it's not something the user could recover from. That's the sort of that's the sort of thing that I'm I'm referring to. Right. Maybe not joining a group because that's one where actually you do want to have like a you already joined this group error, but maybe or maybe not. Maybe, I don't think UI I would. I think I just like. ignore it and be like, here's the group you joined. Right. Like, like, who cares? But I do think the way Ecto does this is nice. So I do I agree with you that a unique constraint automatically bubbling up to active model or active record models as a validation error is wrong because of those reasons. Like oftentimes displaying a validation error is not what you want to do. But the way that Ecto handles this is as part of your change set, you define that you want to consider a unique constraint error on this field a user-facing validation error problem, sure. right? And you opt into that. So in the case of user registration for email, I might do that. 
So the the reason I don't like that is I, I don't have anything fundamentally against that if it works. Mm-hmm. The problem is you can't make that work consistently and in a way that you know will never break because the only way to get that is to parse the error message. Right. Specifically error messages that are not guaranteed to be stable across database versions and just right. I, I I would rather have a, I would rather have a solution that I know will continue to work regardless of the next thing underneath it. Even if it's a technically I'm doing I'm doing air quotes for the listeners technically inferior solution I just don't think that the race condition triggering in a place that the user can recover from it is actually a thing right. that that happens in practice enough to worry about and if it does happen if you do have a what you know I'm not saying that like literally there's no case on the planet where you've ever had a race condition on a unique constraint be a common case where the user can recover from it just that for the majority of people the majority of the time the place that this matters is your sign up form and the error case there is they already have an account. Right. I mean, I, I think the argument for the Ecto way of handling a unique constraint, that it's not something you declare in your application code, it's something you declare in your database and enforce optionally enforce or optionally inform the user of in your application code. The advantage of that is it's right from day one for everybody, right? Like it's never wrong. Where the the disadvantage oh, of the Rails nobody, constraint nobody ever writes the application right. level constraint. You without can't the, you right. can't think you have a uniqueness constraint and then find out from a blog post later on that you don't have a uniqueness constraint. Sure, right? No, definitely, and I think that's a flaw in Rails's naming. Yeah, validate uniqueness of should be like. Yeah. I don't know what you would call it. Like, is perhaps unique is likely to right. be unique. <laughs> a, a name that that better implies like this is for UI display purposes only. It is not a data integrity constraint. Although I think that again, this is part of the problem of Rails tries to conflate its validations with actual data integrity checks. Right. And doesn't encourage you uh, to do data integrity checks from the get go. Hmm. One bright side is even if somebody didn't learn, oh. The Rails uniqueness validation doesn't actually validate uniqueness. Even if they didn't like read the blog post and learn why it doesn't do what it says it does, most developers are still at least somewhat likely to do the right thing because a unique constraint is, generally speaking, indistinguishable from a unique index. Right. Which is a thing that you're likely to add just because it will make everything more performant. Uh, I don't know. If you know that a unique index is something that you can add, I think you know what they do and you know like this isn't a problem. But like... If you know about indexing, you're not necessarily going to be like, you could be like, oh, okay, I want to be able to find a user by an email, so I'm going to index the user table. I think that's a totally reasonable thing to do without jumping to, ooh, I should index this uniquely because it'll make it more performant. Without without knowing that, like, oh, also it constrains the data. (laughs) I think if you know one, you know the other. I think most of the time that you have a thing that you would have a unique constraint on, it could be your primary key anyway. Right, but that's also a thing that Rails doesn't really want you to do. Right? They want you you they want the primary key to be ID. Then that's it. No. Hmm. Really? Yeah, we will consistently alias ID to whatever your actual primary key is if you have a non ID primary key. But like no, we definitely support having primary keys that aren't called ID. Although I guess in the case like in the instance that we're talking about, email, right? That's actually a bad primary key. Because email addresses changes. Right. So you have to have an identifier there, some sort of unique identifier. No, but like for join tables, right? The the mm-hmm. primary key should be the two foreign keys that's joining, assuming it's a it's a unique. Right. If it's a has and belongs to many like unique association kind of thing, and it's just got two, it just has two columns, right? Can you do right. a will Rails do a compound primary key? As far as Rails is concerned, that table has no primary key. 
Well, the the has and belongs to many doesn't. Yes, but if you model it as a has many through, and a, you actually have a join model, right? Again, still as far as Rails is concerned, that table has no primary key. Okay, it's less of like we don't support pri- uh, composite primary keys as much as it is like we don't actively break if you have a composite <laughs> primary key. But like, yeah, Rails from Rails point of view, that table has no primary key. Which I don't remember if that means that calling ID on it errors out or if it re- just always returns a nil. I'm not sure. I think it might always return nil. All right. Anyway, all this to say, database constraints are cool, but also that's not the place for application. In my opinion, that is not the place for application level concerns. Like application code is the right place for validations that are application logic. Which, generally speaking, if it if it's something you would display an error message to the user for. That's an application level concern. Whether or not you also have a data integrity check behind that is a different concern. Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm reviewing my own blog post here. Basically, I boiled it down to like if you're trying if you're trying to prevent bad data from being written in the database, you have to have a schema constraint, right? Yeah. And sometimes Rails out of the box will let you add the constra- schema constraint you want to, and sometimes it won't. And you have to decide whether or not you're okay with not having that constraint or you want to go off the beaten path to add that constraint, right? I mean, we support basically every kind of constraint except check constraints. Check constraints are pretty significant, I think, to not cons- not support. And also, like, also I would enumer- argue that the majority of check constraints are actually application logic. Um, in enumeration? There's an enum type, which is different from a check constraint, and should be done that way. Right, but that doesn't but Rails doesn't support that either. Right? Rails has active record enum, which is not it. which is not right. But out of the box you're not gonna get like schema dumping of an enum type. You won't get schema dumping of it, but like if we see it, we'll just assume it's a string, which is actually the right behavior. Right. You know, we won't do any validation of it and we won't generate all of those fan. I, I, I do think that active record enum should have been built on top of database level enums and it was a mistake to have it. Yeah, that was unfortunate and it comes up every time somebody tries to use it is like you got to be a little bit careful. It's fine. It generally works out okay. Um, you but- can use it with a database level enum actually. Hmm. Okay. Like you won't get schema dumping support. You have to do uh, basically have to do the same legwork that you would do if you had it backed by a string column, which is just uh, when you declare it, instead of giving it an array, you give it a hash where the key and the value are always the same. Okay. In Rails 4.2, I rewrote Active Record Enum to be on top of the attributes API, so uh, or specifically the non-public attribute decorators API, so it, it it doesn't care what your backing database type is. Yeah. And you want to to be honest, you want to use that hash anyway. <laughs> you want right. to use the hash format anyway because like. This is what we have to explain every time somebody tries to use it who hasn't isn't familiar with these hiccups. It's like or these gotchas. It's like let's say you're modeling the status of a blog post or something, and it can be, I don't know, draft or published originally, right? And then so you have an enum with two states, and you have an array of draft, and then the second state is published, and then you add this sec that you add a third state called in review, and you look at the code and you're like, well, logically, this should go draft in review published. So you make your array like that. Congratulations, right. every post that was previously published is now in draft because <laughs> active record enum is going to be an integer under the under the hood and it uses the index in that array as its integer. Uh, so Are you familiar with, uh, with protobuf and Captain proto? <laughs> I am not, no. So they're two data serialization formats. I know what protobufs are, but I don't know what Captain, Captain proto? Captain proto? Yeah. <laughs> no. I don't Captain know what that is. It's great. Look at the logo. It's Captain, like, C-A-P-N. Yeah, like Captain Crunch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Serialization protocol with cereal, like, like breakfast cereal. It's written by the guy who originally wrote Protobuf. K- 
Captain Proto. Infinitely so, faster. Yes. <laughs> so one of the things in uh, protocol buffers is that it sort of maps to the idea of C-structs. Mm-hmm. And while you access fields by name in C-structs, they're actually ordered in memory, right? Right. Whereas in, in Ruby, attributes are basically a hash map. Actually, not, not basically a hash map. It's actually a hash map. Like if, when you access an instance variable, that is looking up the instance variable by name in a map. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you access a field in, uh, on a struct in C, C just knows like, oh, well, that's the third field. And I know the offset of that because right. I know the size of the fields above yep. it. And so, and so in protocol buffers, it's the same thing. Protocol buffers for structs, it's not... Right, you waste a lot of space in JSON when you say for structured data when you just repeat that key over and over and over again. So protocol buffers, they're they're ordered, and it has the exact same problem. When you mm-hmm. add a field anywhere other than at the end, it breaks everything. So right. optionally, it allows you to specify the order in which you added them, and then Captain Proto always requires you to specify the order because turns out that having that sort of gotcha is bad. <laughs> I like that he has on, on the website for Captain Proto, which we'll put in the show notes, it says, why do you pick on protocol buffers so much? And he writes, because it's easy to pick on myself. <laughs> because, like you said, he was one of the authors of protocol buffers. <laughs> Interesting. I hadn't heard of Captain Proto. So it's like, are people just moving to this, like being like, yep, this is better? Uh, I don't know what its adoption is like. I just know it's been around for a while. What makes it faster? Basically, the way it generates code for accessing struct fields, it just directly maps accesses to the um, buffer that it was sent. Okay. I haven't used I haven't used protocol buffers yet. I want to. I want to find a way to use it. The MBTA app we re- rewrote here, there was a protocol buffer API, but I just didn't have the time to be like, how how does this work again? How do I discover what's going on here? And I went with just the REST API instead. <laughs> sure. I mean, it's surprisingly uninteresting. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> like, it's literally just, you know, you have your file which declares what the data types look like, and then you just, like, as far as your application code's concerned, it may as well be JSON. Okay. It just happens to, you know, require a very specific structure, but, like, you don't ever see or care about that. It's all just generated code from the protobuf file. Yeah, so it has that kind of thing that you used to get in the days of WSDL, where you would have, like, you get this protobuf file, and you say, like, generate me some code based on this protocol buffer. But not at runtime. Right, that happens at... This is just like right. you know what it looks like. It's not like you go ask the server, hey. Right. And to be fair, that's how, that's how I actually used WSDLs as well, is you would get them ahead of time, and you'd get the WSDL, and you would generate a client in C Sharp or whatever, and right. then you would use that client. Yeah, it's it's the same sort of thing, but yeah, just generating the deserialization code and serialization code. Does it generate, like, does it know about the methods that are possible with those, with the things coming over? Or is it just for, like, generating models based on the... It's just for generating models. And then, you know, if you wanted to get into methods, then you're getting into, like, RPC stuff. Right. Okay. Uh, and, you know, there's GRPC for that. Cool. I'm going to check out this Captain Proto. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, back that, that all gets around the same issue of the uh, why you want to use the hash format in the active record enum, where you explicitly say, this is the enum value and this is its underlying integer value. Or I guess if you're using an underlying enum, you would say the underlying symbol value. Yeah, or string. Oh, or string, right. Cool. Either one. Yeah, it's it's really it's really redundant when you want to use strings. But this is also part of why I wish we had just mapped to native enum types if present on that backend, and then just strings if it wasn't present on if for backends where it wasn't present. Because this problem doesn't exist when when they're not mapped to integers. Right, and it, and I think one of the things that when I saw it, when it came out, I was like, one of the things about it was like, now this is out of the bag. Like it's going to be so much harder to get what I think should have existed. <laughs> To exist right. properly in Rails because right. now yeah, you have no. compatibility. I, I don't links. think we'll ever migrate active record enum over to use database enums. Yeah. 
I don't know. Don't say never say never. <laughs> Not because like it's impossible, but just because there's a lot of other questions like like supporting enum types. Basically, the main reason we d- it didn't go that direction in the first place was that how the hell do we deal with enums in the migrations API? Was a question that we didn't we didn't want to answer, and right. so I think part of why we won't go after it is because a it still requires answering that question, and then b it's a backwards compatibility concern, not like one that's oh this is you know there's no way we can make this backwards compatible and have a migration layer, but just not on anybody's priority list given all of the. But it's, the, it's one of those things where it's just if it, if if there were an easy and clear path to doing it, I would do it. But right. because there's a bunch of unanswered questions and hard things to solve, it's just not high enough priority to warrant it right now. But had the underlying values been strings, it would be an easier migration path to something a little more proper. Sure. Because your database could just instantly know. You could tell the database, like, those string values, those are now enums, right? And you can get all that right. data from just your database code. And right. you can't do that now that they're disjoint in that, like, the database thinks of them as integers, but the application thinks of them as strings. Yep. Unfortunately, people made that decision for performance reasons. Yeah. Oh, well. Picking vectors that I think don't matter and didn't matter in uh, 2014, 2015, whenever that feature was added. Right. Oh, well. But yeah, so if you're going to use an active record enum, use the hash format and define the actual values. That way you can reorder them to your heart's content. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The alternative is just always add things at the end. But honestly, yeah, always use the hash form. Right. Yeah, because it would bother me to add it at the end and see, like, why is in review after published? That doesn't make sense. Like, the states go draft, in review, published, or whatever. Well, you're also then asserting that all other developers who ever touch the code base have to know that gotcha. Yep, yep. And I've definitely seen that comment in Active Record Enum declarations before. <laughs> like, don't change the order here. <laughs> the, and the other nice thing about using the hash form is that you can remove variants. Right. I mean, you can remove variants... And the other one, they just, you would not have to leave a nil, I guess. Would you just put a nil in the middle? I don't even know. <sighs> anyway. <laughs> well, no, that, I, I mean, that, that's the point, right? Is that like, if you delete element two, element three plus, now right. shifts back. <laughs> right. So the value changes. All right. We should wrap up because I've got to get back to, uh, you know, developing. Isn't it four? It's three. Oh. <laughs> All right. You're, you're in the same time zone as me now. That's right. I'm on the East Coast. <laughs> God about that. Are you doing okay? <laughs> yeah. I sent you a Slack message on the weekend. You're like, is it Wednesday? <laughs> <laughs> the days blur together. <laughs> All right. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 105. As always, rings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time.